0: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Sanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina, how's it going? Tim, how's it going?
1: It's going good, David.
0: Tim, you're in the throes of a play. Are you surviving? We I I
2: am seriously barely surviving our open. So we're doing Reader's Theater for the first three. Oh, first five productions, and then we go into a full performance at the end of this month. This is February 1st, isn't it? Um, And so just readers, do you guys know what Reader's Theater is or a staged reading? Does that make any sense? Like, are you familiar enough? Okay. Yeah, Yeah. So tonight we're doing music stands on stage. The actors will not be moving around, and a few of the stage directions, she drops her tea mug, will be read during the dialogue and we'll be doing it in costume and there'll be a couple of sound cues. I mean it's really really scaled back but it is overwhelming how much work it is. I forgot. I forgot because I've you know the last time I've been on theater somebody else has been doing all of the stage managing stage managing stuff and I've just been acting. Man, it is such a massive task to put on a play. Hmm. I forgot about what a massive task and it also occurs to me how much, like, detailed, fine grain um, work, like, who, hit, who is bringing the scarf to the show tonight? That stuff <laughs> makes me so – it takes all of the energy out of my sales, but it's what I have to do now.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. I just want to hire a stage manager oh, and pay her a yes. lot of money so that I Why don't have Why couldn't your think stage manager it, yeah, be but, a dude?
1: Yeah, really that was very sexist. Thank Gosh, you, you're guys. just on a rant these days. No
0: voting. No
1: scarves. Like this I'm is a what I hear fence. you singing about.
0: I'm offended because – not because you're belittling women, but because I could be a good stage manager. I was Thank actually thinking
1: that, David, when he was leading it up. <laughs> that's why he shocked me with his choice of pronoun. I was like, clearly, out of the three of us, David is the stage manager. You know, it's If funny. you look to me and are like, Angelina, who's bringing the scarves? I'm going to be like, what scarves? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about.
0: <laughs> so it's funny. As you were talking about that, I have a – I was thinking – I have a friend who um, – is a producer for sporting events, like television sporting. He televises sporting events. So last night, I went to, I, I went with him to a Wake Forest, Florida State college basketball game, and mm-hmm. he's the, he's the producer of the show. So I went and watched him, like went in the trailer and watched. That him. seems intense.
2: Uh, that seems. That intense. does. That it sounds whole, great.
0: Yeah, so I sat right behind the producer and the director as they were putting on this whole sporting event, and I was thinking, I was telling people at the office today. You know, this is something like when I was a little kid, I wanted to do sports media. I wanted to Mm. work, either wanted to be like a beat writer or be in broadcasting or something. So ever since I was like eight years old, like I was fascinated by the way sports were televised. Like how do they get the replays on? So I remember being like eight years old and trying to figure out all this stuff. So this was kind of a, you know, something I was interested in as a kid. But Mm -hmm. you know how when you watch a sporting event and it's produced really well, you never notice it, right? you're right. just like yes they're giving me information on the screen now right or yeah. they're showing this from a, a cool camera angle and now i know everything you only I
1: notice when they blow it like you lingered on that cute girl in the audience and i missed the shot <laughs> right <laughs> yes. exactly
0: yeah. right right or, or the you know the score those the they're telling scores from other games and the score is wrong or like but i was realizing like when i had a headset on so i was listening to everything and so I could hear the announcers and the producers and the directors and the statisticians and the graphics guys and the person behind me who was counting down the, the next, they had to get the next billboard up for the advertiser. And I was just thinking that these these people are so good at what they do and they make it look so easy. And it's, it's, it's piles upon piles of details. Oh, and, man, uh, I bet. So probably similar to what you're describing where, you know
1: but in real time that's amazing
0: yeah live yeah um i mean they do it over and over and so they get to in a sense they're rehearsing and they're practicing and they, True. they everybody does their job right yeah and, you, know, you know what your job is um like the the color the play-by-play and the color commentators they don't they know their job um and not everybody's talking to them but then my friend's the producer so he's working with everybody and making it kind of move yes it was, it's pretty cool pretty cool experience to see i bet that was cool I bet
1: yeah. that actually sounds really fascinating So the first, it does. first go
0: ahead the first half of the game i i was i was i was confused but i was like trying to learn the language and like figure out where everything was cuz they have these monitors and there's like 30 of them and they all mean yeah. something different from the replay monitors to the actual feed that's going on to the TVs to you know uh to the seven different cameras that they have going all at the same time and like how, and the t- you know where the director chooses what shot you're seeing on TV and by, by, by the second half i was starting to like I I had a sense of what was actually going on. And so then I could start trying to predict what shot the director was going to put on here and like what what, what statistical storyline were they going to grab? And then like, it was interesting to see where the producer would tell the announcers, okay, in one minute, we're going to do this thing about how this guy's been struggling, but he's having a good game tonight. But I need Mm -hmm. my graphics. So the graphics had one minute to create a graphic that could go on the screen. Wow. And, no and, way. And then the announcer had to know that was coming on there and without ever having looked at it before, interpret the information on there correctly and give it to the audience, who, of course, is sitting there judging what the announcer is saying. So it was cool to hear the whole, to see, the, see and hear all of it going on at one time. And I imagine it's, you're going through the same thing right now. Yeah. In a similar, yeah. In a similar way. Yeah.
2: That's super it, cool. One of the things that strikes me is that The people behind the camera, or in my case, behind the scenes, and the people that are on camera and on the stage, those skill sets are so different. Not that they can't overlap, but they are so different. And the person who has to be able to communicate to both is the director and oftentimes the producer. They kind of have to, you know, you've got to be able to get an actor, in my case, to like, you know... Like this is a, this is an emotional moment in the play and you've got to help the actor reach that moment. And then you've got to, got to go look at color swatches, you know, and, mm, yeah. and lighting. Like do technical lighting details. Exactly. And yeah. it's just keeping track of all of the details. I love, I love looking at color swatches. I love fine tuning lighting. I love more than anything, probably working with actors but it's remembering scarves. That's the thing that I cannot do. That's
0: going be the title
1: it. of your memoir. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, title
2: of
0: the, the title of the memoir should be Forgetting Scarves. Forgetting scarves. Yeah, that should scarves. be. That would be no. more accurate. No, so one no, of the so, things
1: Okay, so here's a funny little story. Then, since we have outed me as a as a former athlete, so when <laughs> I, I watched a lot of sports as a kid, oh my goodness. I yeah, like you have no idea. Kept intricate stats of my favorite mm. team. Like, I mean just I had a box in my room. I can still to this day tell you the 1982 starting lineup of the Atlanta Braves. I mean like I was into it.
2: <laughs> Good but for you. I, I
1: can. And but anyway, so I wanted to be the color commentator. Which you can totally see that, right? Like that was my dream job. I was going to be the color commentator. Which if our listeners don't know what that is that you got you got two 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 guys. Well, we don't really have yeah. them to do we but two, two guys talking about the, the game and one is the play-by-play he's literally describing what is happening. Uh, the color commentators, the guy that's going to tell the funny stories and the witty anecdotes and the or overall... analyze, analyze, yeah, analyze, he's going to, the... he's going to give the the sweeping narrative about what's going on. So he's going to be the more, the more, the big picture guy, the more entertaining yeah. one. He's usually got a catchphrase.
0: Boom. So <laughs> <laughs> like John Madden, um. <laughs> Angelina, you would be great at that. So,
2: thank you. I really feel you like I could be, have been something You at would that.
0: be great at that. So, one of the things that I, I was thinking about as I was watching this, and then as you were describing the, you know, you're both talking about this, is that people who are really good at what they do, that that has an outward-facing result, like something people can yeah. consume or enjoy or whatever, yeah. make it look so easy. And I was thinking about that in connection with this book a little bit because because mm. um, we are here to talk about Howard's End, Ian e. Forrester's novel, for those of you who have not been joining. This is us the first
1: the- ever we've had banter that Matt Bianco's yeah. gonna listen to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I
0: don't know. I don't know. Um I'll I'll tell him to listen. We'll see what he says. But um they make it look so easy. And and there's something about the way Forrester writes that feels I can't decide if it feels easy or not. Like it flows off his pen. It
1: feels breezy to me, yeah. right? I don't and, know if that's the same thing as easy, but
0: Yeah. Like I've been trying to decide. Is he was he a writer? Like, does it feel to me like he was a writer who who slaved over every sentence and like was sweating and like I've asked myself like that, that too.
1: That's funny. We were both thinking about that then.
0: Or is he a writer for whom some of these you know, longer passages, like describing the, describing somewhat poetically the geography of England and things like that. Um, did that just flow out of him? Like, did he barely have to think about it? And I, I mean, I know every writer spends a lot of time editing and things like that. I I know there's a whole process to it, but I want, I've been trying to figure out what it feels like his writing was like, um,
1: my guess is that he's not the kind of guy where we're gonna have a story like where the editor really wrote the book. You know, like he had the idea, of the editor comes in there like fixes it.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know probably I mean? not. There's I, a lot doesn't... of books
1: like that. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel like this book was a fight. Like it just feels like it's his voice to me. It just. I mean, of course, again, like you said, everybody they make it easy if if they're good, but this so, it so much feels to me like just off the cuff observations. You know, I think that's why I like it so much.
0: Hmm. Tim, how do you uh how do you feel about that? What is it? What does his writing feel like to you? Tim?
2: Are you there?
1: His little thing is blinking. Where is he? he
0: it says he's muted. This is good radio.
2: Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry you guys. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I was trapped in a glass house yelling calling for you. And you couldn't hear me.
1: I was throwing stones. I mean, that didn't work.
2: (laughs) I was like, and I gave the most wonderful answer. It's like the best answer I've ever given on close reads, you guys.
0: And of course, you won't be able to
2: replicate it. We did it. We did it.
0: Give it a shot, though.
2: I think I I totally agree with Angelina. His style is breezy. Is a great word. I think I thought earlier. It's kind of whimsical. And I have a feeling he's probably not like Flaubert, who, apparently Madame Bovary just took eons to write, and he, you know, Gustave Flaubert is sort of the name that everyone thinks of when they think of a painstaking craftsman who labors over every comma and who is just chiseling his masterpiece. It struck me that, like Forster could probably this struck me is he wrote it quickly.
0: Yes. I
2: love.
1: Okay, so I love your metaphor, right? So if Flaubert is chiseling, like so he's Uh uh in the stone and he's meticulously, you know, taking away at that, then I feel like the enforcers like Jackson Pollock, like he's just throwing buckets of paint Mm -hmm. on the canvas and boom, there it is, you know? Some art scholar is going to jump all over mm -hmm. me for characterizing Jackson Pollock like that. But that's my impression of that impression. There you go.
0: So you don't, there doesn't feel like this precision to it then? Is that- is that true?
1: I don't know that I would say it's not precise. It just feels unlabored. Like, it just feels like it flows. Yeah. He's describing a world he knows, and these are people he knows. Like we've said before, the Schlegel sisters are based on people he knows. And that might be part of why it feels so flowy. Hmm. Almost See, journalistic I think, in a way. I don't know.
0: Do you have any Angelina, examples? I
2: think, um, I think Jackson Pollock is a really good illusion because... If you look at a Jackson Pollock painting, it's not as if it's unstructured. They're actually pretty structured. He will put down kind of like a baseline of black, let's say, and that kind of has a rhythmic structural quality in the painting. And it might just look like splashes, but there's something, at least to me, about Pollock's paintings that are very that are harmonious if you can kind of dwell in them a little bit and i think it fits forrester it looks like he's splashed paint but there is some structure underneath what's going on Hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah but it's like not entirely traditional because i know some of our our readers are are struggling with that on the facebook page you know because it's not it's it's this is not a typical novel structure Not even now, we were in the postmodern age where everybody's messing with form and we're not necessarily seeing this. Mm. This is is different. And I wish I could remember what his other novels are like and I can't. It's just been too long to to remember if they're like this or not. I suspect they are. Because again, it feels so Virginia Woolf as I'm reading this. And so it's probably just them at the time.
0: Do you, Tim, do you still feel, now that we're through chapter 20, do you still feel like you're wondering what this book is about? Like, is that sense of that? I don't know if I would say it's a disconcerting sense, but just that feeling of um, non-direction or something. Does does that, uh, is that still still hovering over you?
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, th- we had a big moment in this, in this reading, there's, we had an engagement, mm-hmm. you know, that's usually either The conclusion or the near conclusion of a book, or maybe it's the beginning of a book, but most often it's the conclusion of a book, and we have it, and and it's a big one between spoiler alert, Mister Wilcox and Margaret, and it's almost in the direct middle of the book, Mm -hmm. you know, and so in that way, it's another way in which he's he's more than just tinkering with the form; he's (laughs) taken the bolts off the screws and is like putting together a different apparatus.
0: Is it can we can we um if we were talking about the book using some of the traditional uh structural elements, mm-hmm. um is there could could we could we identify where those elements show up so far? Like do we have Oh, that's
2: that's a great question.
0: It um, is a great question. It, I mean,
1: it, I think we have a quest for home, probably is the essential motif, right?
0: L- well, it literally is a quest for a home. Mm-hmm. So um I don't I don't do you think that he is is I don't know what the word is I don't mean to say that he's like trying to be ironic or even do a send up or a satire but no I is, definitely she, don't think she, it's ironic She is literally looking for a home yeah so do, right. you think, do you think he is making trying to do I mean is he making a commentary on that narrative element you know that that trope
1: okay so here's I don't know is if he, this entirely he, answers your question or uh-huh. not. Here's uh-huh. my sense, but like and it speaks back to what Tim was saying. Cause we did have a big moment. We've had a death and now we've had an engagement. Like mm-hmm. these are the two biggest moments in existence, right? These are mm-hmm. these are, and, and he doesn't milk them and he pulls the camera away, if we're gonna use that metaphor.
0: Just need a birth. But I know exactly, exactly I was say the same thing. Exactly,
1: right? You know? But um I think in this section, we got much more of a sense of what he's doing. So he's been setting up Margaret's ideal world versus Mr. Wilcox's real world, right? Uh-huh. And and the, all these conversations about what's real, the inner life or the outer life. And Helen wants to live entirely in the inner life. And Meg says, no, there's something. Yes, I agree. The inner life is the most valuable. But there's also something really good and valuable about the outer life. And she's, of course, very drawn to the Wilcoxes because of that, um, So when we look at the engagement and we look at Margaret's interior mom, okay, what is she thinking about it? I think that we understand now why Forrester is doing what he's doing with the narrative, right? Margaret wants the romance, she wants him to make the declaration he she wants him to kiss her but lead up to the kiss and then give mm-hmm. her this moment and then afterwards let's talk about our feelings and he's just like boom out of nowhere kiss <laughs> and now on to the next you know business yeah. matter and he just leaves her hanging which is also what Ian e. Forster is doing to us we are all left hanging you know he's not let we're he's not letting us do what Margaret wants he's not sweeping us up in this story like this whole book has read like mr wilcox's kiss that's my thesis there you go out of nowhere boom and i'm off
0: so okay i wanted to ask you about that do you do either of you think that do you think he kisses her like that in this kind of non-romantic way because he is feeling awkward I'll just put it that well, way. Well,
1: Margaret makes the point that after they get to know each other, that's still who he is. He's not a romantic man. She says he's mm-hmm. never going to open up to his emotions. It's just this is mm-hmm. not who he is. Mm-hmm. She's not going to be the the female character who gets him in touch with his feelings. That's not this story. She's not going to set him free to feel. This is not right. Jamie and Rochester, right? Like,
0: Is she even trying? Like, does she, Or does she? Does no. she, she she's okay she with him being how it. he is.
1: She totally yeah. accepts it.
0: Do you? Uh, we talked in the last episode about how it feels a little bit like Forrester is keeping us at arm's length from our characters. Do you, f- particularly Margaret and and Helen, to a certain extent, do we feel like we know Margaret better after this section than we did before? Like as our kind of uh, protagonist, or or, or is she still a mystery to us?
1: I feel like I'm getting to know her, Tim. How do you feel?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I feel like I know her a little better. And I, but, and I like her more. I like her a lot more. Hmm.
0: There was an interesting line in chapter 16 where Leonard is, it's, it's kind of from Leonard's perspective. Um, and it says that he scarcely distinguished between the two sisters. One was more beautiful and more lively, but yeah. the Schlegel still remained a composite Indian god whose waving arms and contradictory speeches were the product of a single mind. And, and <laughs> they, that's such that. so good. And I just parked, I marked in my margins that Forrester even there is keeping keeping them at arm's length from us as individuals, right? Like we aren't fast as help it's just as confused as we are, and and yes. we're not we're not learning anything new about them or or coming to coming to understand them as individual people, individual characters, any more than he is as individual people.
1: Yes, and we talked last time about whether or not Forrester's showing us something about um, the unknowability of another human being. And I think we see that with Margaret and Mr. Wilcox. And Margaret's just sort of acceptance of, well, this is how much we're going to know each other, and that's good enough, right? Um, And then the same thing where I've previously felt like the Schlegel sisters might be treating Leonard a little bit like a project and not really like a person. But then in this scene, Leonard kind of does the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. They're just this goddess of multi arms, you know, they're not real people to him yet. And so because everybody seems to be viewing each other that way, I don't feel like he's pointing out character flaw, character flaw, character flaw, right? Like this is just the Mm -hmm. nature of human interactions is Mm -hmm. where none of us are really understanding each other.
2: And, And that being said, Angelina, does that make you think that, um, the quote about the only true thing, forgive me, I'm going to botch it, is one's um, kind of personal emotional affections. Do you guys, you guys know what the quote that I'm talking about?
1: That was the quote that David started with from. Yes, that right, married. right, Did right, right. About? Yeah, what was that? I don't remember.
2: Uh, Keith. It's an allusion to Keats. I am certain of nothing but the holiness of, of the heart's affections. But the quote from Forrester, for me, it's on page 155. What chapter? Uh, 19. One is certain of nothing but the truth of one's emotions.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm hmm. um, trying to find what because I there's a lot that's happening there. Um,
1: there is. That
0: whole chapter
1: um <laughs> I, marked so many I
0: wrote that this is nonsense of course as Margaret knows <laughs> <laughs> um
1: yes but Helen and Margaret are both comfortable accepting a certain amount of nonsense and I feel like I relate to that so
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and uh, Because
1: this would not be problem. Like to tell me something I believe is nonsense would seriously not be problematic to me. I would just look at you and grin to myself and think that's so cute that you think I have to make sense. Well, (laughs) operating on a whole other plane than you. Like like, it just wouldn't bother me in the least.
0: It's um. Let me see if I can find a word from the list that does not that's not interesting. (laughs) That's an interesting. It's uh. It's relevance. How about
1: fanciful, Angela? That was so fanciful. It was. It's
0: relevant that you talk about making sense because right. Right below that line about nothing, one is certain of nothing but the truth of one's emotions, he, um, it says, it was, however illogically, the good, the beautiful, the true, as opposed to the respectable, the pretty, the adequate. Yes. You may have even... I
1: put that on Facebook. Yeah.
0: And then right below that... <laughs>
1: Everyone can track my reading by following me on <laughs> <Yes>. Facebook.
0: <laughs> right below that, it sharpened idealism, stirred the soul. It may have been a bad preparation for what followed. Mm. Um, but it isn't, I, I'm, I am fascinated. There's a, there's a, there's a word from the list that people mm. provided for us. I am fascinated by this idea of people not knowing each other in this book, but also I don't want to say using each other because I think it's a little harsh, that but, is harsh. But, but um, getting something from other people that they're looking to get or that they need. So like Leonard gets out of the Schlegels, you know, that's that line that is pretty funny. He was itching to talk about books and make the most of his romantic hour.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um and yes yes they're after something from each other yeah there's some deep abiding need in them for something that is being fulfilled by other people even though they don't like they see that the person might be able to meet a need for them even if they don't know them and so there's that struggle to get to know them and have that need fulfilled within this other person
1: Well, that's really interesting for, to, to me for a lot of reasons um
0: yeah but do you mean interesting like is this is it interesting like you actually like it like no are i you,
1: actually like it like, and I'm now spurred to thought <laughs> and i'm feeling excited <laughs> in my heart and a bunch like, of other nonsensical emotions
0: you are intrigued by my ideas and wish to su- subscribe to my newsletter
1: i'm so intrigued <laughs> i don't subscribe to newsletters nor do i listen to podcasts so clearly i'm not a model for anyone but <laughs> um it's it's such a fine line right about mm-hmm how people work in community because, there is a sense which you can go too far off the deep end and now you're, you're you're using each other. But there's another sense in which that's exactly how God makes us to be complimentary, right? Like, so the love I freely give someone just happens to be the, the love that they need, all right? And so I I now experience joy because I have the joy of giving to someone something that they genuinely need. And, and then the model of that, of course, is the Trinity, three people who are loving each other and giving each other what they need and no one's using each other, right? But there's a, that's a delicate tension. It's so easy, you know, in families, in marriages, in friendships, in work relationships where somebody all of a sudden feels like we've gone we've gone askew a little bit and now I'm being used, right? So it, it's a dance, really, right? But I can't help but think also of all the conversations we're having in this book about economics and that it's sort of the same dance, if you kind of get my drift, right, between socialism mm-hmm. and capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Uh at, in, in one sense, the the economy should work in a way in which everybody's benefiting, right? People are giving, people are taking, and it's mutually beneficial for everyone. But then sometimes it falls out of skew, right? And so somebody's taking too much and someone's not giving enough. And, um, and so there've just been all these economic conversations, which also are essentially about how do you live in community in terms of the economy, right? So it's kind of, I feel like it's the same conversation across a, a variety of topics. Does mm-hmm. that make sense?
2: That does make sense.
1: Yes. You sound so it does make surprised, sense. Tim. Well, no.
2: <laughs> Gosh, Angelina, that
0: was stunningly insightful. <laughs> much, better. much better. I like you so did, much better on a take two. He, he, didn't, he didn't say shockingly insightful. Just He wasn't okay. shocked that you were insightful. You're right. Okay. The insi- insight was just stunning. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: No, I think... I. That's a, that's a very cogent explanation of this book. And believe me, I am still in the market for cogent explanations <laughs> of this book.
1: <laughs> I, this is my I specialty, making sense of nonsense. Bring me more.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that I'm like, last week I was really having trouble with it. I think that like Margaret is growing to accept Mr. Wilcox is of a he is a certain type of man and she is going to accept it and not try to change him I think I am learning to accept that E.M. Forrester's book is a certain type of book and I'm not gonna hope for it to be another type
1: oh that's really good I like and that
2: I, and I've once I have made my peace with it I'm beginning to enjoy it more
1: well, that's I didn't, one of my absolute heels to die on is that you have to honor the nature of a thing. I think it's taken us a little while to figure out what the nature of this thing is, but, you know.
2: I don't think I showed up wanting it to be a Jane Austen novel. I don't want to say that I came and I like, was trying to, like, force it into some sort of preexistent literary theory or archetype or something like that. I don't think I was doing that. I just didn't know what in the world we were reading. And I still don't know but for some reason, it's been a little bit more, it's been kind of easy to just get on the raft and float down the river. And that's where I, that's what's happening right now. I'm floating down the river.
1: <laughs> well good there was a lot of river imagery here so
0: yeah there was. very well fitting right
1: very fitting and no one asked me but you know if anybody wants to take a little heart check on where i am in my relationship with mr Forster, um yeah i'm ready to move this to the coming. next level because i really oh, really man, i just i'm digging him so much i can't even stop like oh there were so many lines i just want to tattoo on myself it's is ridiculous like right on my forehead the line where he says you can either choose to look at the modern world steady or whole but not both, and I was like, "This is my
2: yeah.
1: daily struggle." I mean, that was so good. That was a great
2: line. Such that a, was good a great line. line.
1: Oh, just such good insights. Like, I, uh, I feel like the tension he's creating between the Wilcoxes and the Schlegels is the tension I live in every single day.
2: You know what I love about it is that he, I think, through the mouth of Helen, gives real respect to the Wilcoxes. I mean, I think that he. He genuinely acknowledges that the Wilcoxes make the world go round yes. and they are kind of piggybacking on what the Wilcoxes yes bring into it i wish we could read that paragraph i thought it was delightful yes. well, the one
1: where margaret essentially says look helen we wouldn't get to have this life of leisure and ideas and romance if the Wilcoxes of history did not make yes birth. right
2: i thought i thought it was actually coming out of begrudgingly out of helen's was mouth it? but i probably well, missed oh, i'd probably well, misremember let's try to
1: find that then because yeah. i also really really loved that and that's again i love that he keeps holding these things in tension with one another. Like, it would be so easy to just bash the Wilcoxes as the modern man. Right. Uh, But he doesn't. And Margaret is very self-effacing with her own comments, too. You know, just really willing to give honor where it's due and saying it's not a matter of, you know, the high-minded ideals that we carry as being the most important thing. You know, yes, I believe they're important, but the Wilcoxes are also important. Commerce is yes. important. Life is important. Uh, Men going to the army is important. Like all of that is real. And if we did not have that, the 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 world of ideas that we have the luxury and leisure to live in would not exist. Right. Well,
0: right. that's what Helen, I think Helen, maybe Margaret says to Leonard when they're kind of having their argument there, because there she says, "What is the good of your stars and trees?" your sunrise and the wind, and this is in chapter 16, if they do not enter into our daily lives. They have never entered into mine, but into yours, we thought. Haven't we all to struggle against life's daily grayness, against pettiness, against mechanical cheerfulness, against suspicion? I struggle by remembering my friends. Others I have known by remembering some place, some beloved place or tree. We thought you one of these. Mm -hmm. David, who is that from? That's from Margaret talking to Leonard uh, in mm. chapter sixteen, mm. um, and and so I'm I find you use the word tension, and I I'm I find that that's a really uh, compelling. No, no, that's well, it's a really compelling word to discuss the book big picture, because when we talk about um, when we talk about narrative drive and plot and all that kind of stuff in in fiction there's always the question of like, what is the tension? What is this being trying, you're trying, the characters are trying to overcome or fight against or survive against or whatever it is. Like, what is the central tension that drives the narrative? And one of the things we've talked about is not much happens. And that, that is sort of true. But at the same time, there are what a half dozen or a dozen little tensions that are building up and bubbling up and keeping our narrative going forward. It's not yeah. like the narrative is stagnant. These tensions are moving it forward. And the epitaph at the beginning or whatever you call it is only connect, right? And so how, these, how people are connecting and how these ideas are connecting and how people are connecting to ideas and how ideas are being interwoven into people's lives, that's where the tensions are. Because mm-hmm. it's what you know, people are striving for connection. And they're trying. There's all these different ways they're trying to do that, and some people are doing it successfully, and some people are doing it unsuccessfully. Yes. And they're recognizing possibility in each other, but it's not always being. That's not always being met. Um, the possibilities aren't always being fulfilled, and that's where the tensions are, and that's where our narrative thrust, our narrative drive, mm-hmm. our narrative focus is. Um, and so that's. I love that 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 he doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be some big. Um, climactic battle, so to speak. I'll use that word very broadly and generally. Um, it can, it's these in these small moments of people trying to create connection, either with themselves or find a connection with an idea that can be meaningful to them. That we get our story.
1: God, but um, I feel like I'm, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, and it just it strikes me as you're talking about how deeply realistic that is. Like, and that's mm-hmm. not a word you hear me throw around. Yes. Much. But this is really what our lives are like. And yeah, we're going to have births and deaths and marriages and heartbreak and job loss. But but mostly it's the day-to-day grind that we can't seem to wrap our heads around. It would be yes. so much easier. Like I always say, it'd be so much easier just to be a martyr, right? It's like, boil me in oil. I will have an awesome last speech and that will be that, right? But this this daily, where do I put the junk mail? Like this,
0: right. and <laughs> this that's is why... the
1: stuff that I don't know how to handle.
0: <laughs> and that's why Margaret is saying what good is the sunrise and the wind and all that kind of stuff if it doesn't enter into our daily lives. If it doesn't give those things some kind of meaning, or so at least some context that they happen in, that makes them right. It makes and that. I f-
1: and I feel like our particular audience is going to connect very strongly with this idea because these are people who are at home, living the daily grind, right. of homeschooling. Which you know, and we we do have our homeschool victories. We do have our epiphanies and our amazing moments and our Instagram photos. But mostly, it's it's eleven thirty. Put off your take off your pajamas.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> No more screens.
1: Yes. Yes. No more screens for the love of God. Five minutes of reading. You know, that's what yeah. it's really like. It just it feels like Sisyphus and you're just, you know, trying to roll this thing up and mostly it we're trying feel glorious and grand.
0: Mostly, even in our homeschooling, we're trying to struggle against life's daily grayness, against pettiness, against mechanical cheerfulness, and against suspicion.
2: Yes. yes well david what's that from
0: is that from our book <laughs> yeah. that was beautiful <laughs> thank you uh, yes david,
1: david's so breezy with his just off the he's so comments. whimsical he's
0: so whimsical i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and draw a compliment for myself from the list how about <laughs> you know that's right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Do you have a,
2: Did you write all these things down from the Facebook poll that was created I mean, for you? I got, write I got, them on you little. Know
1: that's right, is my favorite. I got,
0: I got my iPhone up open right here. You know, I love Come it, on, son. Every, now, every now, and then, it goes dim, <laughs> and I gotta touch it so I can, you know.
1: Kudos I, to any of our listeners who get the reference that David and I just made. So, boom, <laughs> there you go.
0: Um, let's talk can about I, go ahead, David. Go ahead. I, before we leave this subject,
2: I have been thinking about. Forster's kind of view of of relationships and there's part the word realistic that Angelina used is the ex, it's the exact right word. It's realistic. Um and I keep thinking about Margaret's relationship with Mr. Wilcox. She just relatively rapidly accepts his limitations and I think it's a glimmer of hope that this relationship is actually going to be pretty functional. It might not have the great depth of the you know, of the romantic stories of yore. But it's going to be very functional. It's going to work. And Margaret's even hopeful that love will bloom out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think about so many of the novels that we read and so many of the great stories, maybe Romeo and Juliet is kind of the tried example, where a deep and fundamental connection between lovers... Is held up and embraced as it's the thing that we all want. And Forrester's view is so—I'm going to say—antithetical to that. I don't think that, like, the, I don't think that Forster couldn't write a great romance. I think that he could, but I think his view, at least in this book, is that um, our personal feelings, our proclivities our natures are so varied that what we really should be hoping for is to kind of bump into each other, connect. Maybe we separate, maybe we connect again, but I don't think that he is, this is what's confusing me a little bit. I don't think he's a capital R romantic again, not in the 19th century, 18th Mm -hmm. century sense, but in the, um, true romantic love between the sexes is where salvation lies i think he'd be like that's a crock don't go you know that's not something you should be looking for at least in this book and and so i've been having this little conversation with myself like well what is (laughs) what's the right view like what's the is is I find capital R romantic books so satisfying. I also find this book to be profoundly realistic. And there's this kind of tension that's created in me. And I, and I, I'm just kind of sitting with it for now. What do you, I wonder what you guys think about that.
0: Well, maybe you, maybe you like the capital R romance. Like maybe you feel that's so appealing because it's only realistic to a certain extent. You mean it's limited and it's what do you mean it's Well I mean you're saying that like you like you find the the um the realism of the realisticness of this book and the the way it presents romance to be I don't know what did you say compelling I don't know, I remember what do you say Yeah 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 but are profound um but that you long for the capital R romance that is right. not as realistic but right. maybe you long for the one that's not as realistic because it can provide something that is that is not available in the more realistic stories. Uh-huh. And so maybe that maybe you get a this maybe there's a degree of catharsis or something you can get because it it it's it's not less profound, but it's perhaps just fulfilling something that is not universally well, it's that's not necessarily I don't know how to, to exp, that's not realistic. <laughs> I mean, oh, I, I oh, could go oh. on and on about it, but I, for the sake of conversation, like, I think like, that's a whole podcast conversation we could have just on that right. topic about why we prefer, like, why do we prefer fantasy stories to like, yeah, yeah, you know, works of real to, uh, to
2: realism. yeah novels about bureaucratic offices, um, doing paperwork. <laughs>
1: Well, okay, so it will come as a surprise to absolutely no one that I am both a capital R and a small R romantic, uh, <laughs> and and just absolutely believe with everything that I am that, um, I mean, I'm a tra- I'm, I'm 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 a disciple of Charles Williams in the theology of romantic love. Like, I'm this is not run of the mill thoughts for me. Like, mm. I absolutely believe that romantic love is the union of two souls by which you enter into this mystery and can know God better. And I take that absolutely deathly serious and believe that it's so transformative. And, and so I would never in a million years do what Margaret does. Like Mr. Wilcox would get a kick in the teeth, you know, like it just would <laughs> never ever ha- I would never be like, I can live with this. That would never happen. And yet I can appreciate what's being presented here. I can, I can appreciate the same idea as but we need the Wilcoxes for the world to move, and we need so, these can, kinds of marriages for the world to move. And so, it's not going to be for the Helens of the world, and it's not going to be for the Angelinas of the world. But God bless you, Margaret. You know. Mm. But then, but then, even then, okay. So, so we don't get the grand romance. But even then, he gives us this line, which gave me a little bit of hope. This line is in chapter twenty. Mm-hmm. Love was so unlike the article served up in books. The joy, though genuine, was different. The mystery. Mm-hmm an unexpected mystery mm. so i liked that in the sense that there there is a mystery they're entering here it might not and be she the knows one it. Be expected yes
2: yeah she knows it and she has already accepted it it's so funny because I, it seems to me like so many now we're talking about like my life but i've seen so many relationships and you guys have seen this too the the big romances start off, fireworks, boom, thunder in the background, light on the horizon. And inevitably, there comes a time where the real personalities set in, the real, you know, like the romance of um, uh, asks is taken off, and your two real people are looking at each other and recognizing, oh... I had a glorified image of you and now I'm either going to accept you for what you are and you're going to accept me for what I am or we're doomed. And it seems like Margaret got to that place before she got to, without having the fireworks with the thunder on the horizon.
0: Well, there's that, There's that uh, in chapter 19, there's the conversation between she and Helen where Helen's basically saying, you shouldn't do this and and um margaret says i don't intend him or any man or any woman to be all my life good heavens no there are heaps of things in Mm -hmm. me that he doesn't doesn't talking about an anti-romantic speech yeah 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 but do you so do you is it anti-romantic or is she i mean in some ways couldn't you say that that um it is it is romantic for her to say um we're limited in our ability to get to know each other i'm never going to know everything about him he's never going to know everything about me but we're going to be committed to each other and we're going to have this relationship and we're going to do our best like that's not an unromantic perspective Well, no, it, it depends
1: what your terms are i'm talking about romantic like a certain philosophical ideal okay
0: yeah, okay like okay yeah, yeah
1: personally something i find you know that's
0: where we I were using
1: gushy you know yeah, yeah I mean, the capital I mean,
0: r lowercase I mean, yeah, r yeah i'm, I'm right. using
1: it in in the, in the philosophical sense you know she's She's not looking for someone to complete her. Mr. Wilcox is not her soulmate. This is a very it's going to be what it is and it's going to be good and I'm happy Marriage about it.
0: Marriage was to I alter her it, fortune's not her character. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Neither one of these people's on a rescue mission. You know, they're they're I I think she really appreciates that Mr. Wilcox is capable and I think Mr. Wilcox appreciates that it's about her that she's capable.
0: So what what is she I mean are they after there's the line about the fortunes, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but it, I mean, are they after, what are they after with each other? I, I mean, is she after companionship? Is he out, you know, as a widow or is he af- after um, companionship? Is that the primary thing that brings them together? I um, thought he was after
1: it- companionship. Is that not how y'all read that?
0: i read it that way and with but is that does that is that consistent with what you're saying there angelina it felt a little bit like you were
1: i'm not i'm not sure how that's inconsistent a companionship is not exactly a capital r romantic ideal
2: right Um, he
1: doesn't want to like merge with her soul (laughs) 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 he just wants someone to have tea with you know (laughs) made dim speeches in this episode. Oh my
2: gosh, it was so great. That's, and it's so. i That's got to show up on the Facebook page. It's like, that's going to be like an all time quote. Cool. The only trouble, the only reason it might not show up on the Facebook page is because the intonation merged with her soul. He wants somebody to have tea with. <laughs> that was great. That was so great.
0: That I don't even know if I agree with that, honestly. <laughs> like, I don't know.
2: You don't know if that's I, what Mr. Wilcox... I don't
0: know if he don't... doesn't entirely want that. Like, I don't think that... I mean, I'm not, I now, there's a difference between what does he want, like, what am I seeing in him as a character, and what do I think he's saying? Like the books, not, I don't think the book is saying that he wants to merge with her soul.
1: <laughs> and Margaret doesn't seem to think that's what's going to happen. That, this, this, that's how I'm reading it from her. Like, you know, when she thinks about what will this be and am I okay with what this is? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a very, no, I'm not saying this is wrong. Okay. Because it's actually quite true, but it's a very anti-capital-R romantic thing for her to say. There are going to be parts of him always that I do not know.
0: Hmm. Do you think Elizabeth Bennett would say the opposite? Or would she agree with that? Oh,
1: that's a good question. I think she'd probably agree with that.
2: But the nature of her agreeing with that seems to me like no, it would be different. I, I think yes, she'd be... Yes. It's almost qualify. like she'd be answering a different... She'd she it'd be answering to the affirmative, but well, there's a slightly different question.
1: Earlier, or 200 right? 200 years earlier. No, 150 years earlier. Right. Um, and, uh, and so the expectations of what a good match would, would look like would be so, so different. I mean, she Mm -hmm. does want to know Mr. Dorsey. She makes comments like, Oh, I can see we haven't gotten to the point yet where I can make fun of him about this. She does want to know him. She does want to have that close relationship with him. Um, I doubt that Elizabeth. Elizabeth Bennet is much more likely to throw around the term soulmate than Margaret is, but I don't know that Elizabeth would have tossed it around either.
0: So there's a long passage in chapter 20, that, the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20, where it her kind of philosophy, you know, wax poetic, waxes poetic about the nature of love. Um, and it's kind of fascinating how he structures it because you have this whole conversation with Helen, right? Where she's trying to convince Margaret not to do it. Um, and they're comparing Margaret and Helen are kind of comparing Margaret's relationship with Mr. Wilcox to Helen's earlier, you know, <clears throat> fling with Paul. And the conversation ends super abruptly. There's no uh, sense of closure to the conversation whatsoever, at least as far as the part of it that we are um, included in. And it ends with Margaret saying, rubbish, exclamation point, and then it says there was a long silence during which the tide returned into Pool Harbor. Um, and then, then we get this whole thing about the water creeping over the mud flats towards the gorse and the blackened heather. And this all this stuff about England's geography and topography and stuff with the reference to the jewel and the silver sea, the reference to Shakespeare and all that. And then we get the chapter ends sort of suddenly. And then we get chapter 20. And then this is where we get Margaret thinking about the nature of love. And I want to know if you think that what she's saying here about the nature of love love is consistent, or where where it falls into this sort of continuum of romance, <laughs> from lowercase r to capital R. Um, so Angelina, would you mind reading that first chapter on the or the first p- paragraph on chapter twenty?
1: Yes, sure. Margaret had often wondered at the disturbance that takes place in the world's waters when love, who seems so tiny a pebble, slips in. Whom does love concern beyond the beloved and the lover? Yet his impact deluges a hundred shores. No doubt the disturbance is really the spirit of the generations, welcoming the new generation and chafing against the ultimate fate, which holds all the seas in the palm of her hand. But love cannot understand this. He cannot comprehend another's infinity. He is conscious only of his own. Flying sunbeam, falling rose, pebble that asks for one quiet plunge below the fretting interplay of space and time. He knows that he will survive at the end of things and be gathered by fate as a jewel from the slime and be handed with admiration round the assembly of the gods. Men did produce this, they will say, and saying they will give men immortality. But meanwhile, what agitations, meanwhile? The foundations of propri- property and propriety are laid bare, twin rocks. Family pride flounders to the surface, puffing and blowing and refusing to be comforted. Theology, vaguely ascetic, gets up a nasty groundswell. Then the lawyers are aroused, cold brood, and creep out of their holes. They do what they can. They tidy up property and propriety, reassure theology and family pride, Half guineas are poured on the troubled waters. The lawyers creep back, and it all has gone well. Love joins one man and woman together in matrimony. Okay, now... that's good.
0: That's really, really fine. I wanted to read these in in reverse order on purpose, because so we get the metaphors that he's using here of love as a jewel from the slime are um, gathered up by fate, and then also the idea of... The disturbance that takes place in the world's waters when love, who seems so tiny a pebble, slips in, so this um, deluging a hundred shores and all that. Okay, let's. Now we have that in place. Tim, why don't you read the last paragraph of chapter nineteen? Because what Forrester does here is my—it's my favorite thing we've read so far—the way he is connect, ending and beginning these chapters, like the way he's bracketing these. And
1: he began nineteen the same way.
0: Yeah, I was going to talk about that, but we're running out of time, so we'll just talk about this for now. (laughs) Go ahead, Tim. There was a long
2: silence during which the tide returned into Pool harbor. One would lose those, murmured Helen, apparently to herself. The water crept over the mud flaps toward the gorse and the blackened heather. Brank sea Island lost its immense foreshores and became a somber episode of trees. From was forced inward toward Dorchester, Stour, and Wimborne, Avon toward Salisbury, and over the immense displacement, the sun presided, leading it to triumph ere he sank to rest. England was alive, throbbing through all her estuaries, crying for joy, joy, through the mouths of all the gulls, and the north wind, with contrary motion, blew stronger against her rising seas. What did it mean for what end are her fair complexions, her changes of soil, her sinuous coast? Does she belong to those who have molded her and made her feared by other lands or to those who have added nothing to her power, but have somehow seen her, seen the whole island at once, lying as a jewel in the silver sea, sailing as a ship of souls with all the brave world's fleet accompanying her toward
0: eternity? So as Angelina said, chapter 19 is bracketed. By these two contemplations of or at least uses of the metaphor of england's geography and then so chapter 19 ends with this and then chapter 20 begins with what you just read angelina and he so the way he ties that together in chapter beginning of chapter 20 is clearly meant to be tied back to 19 um the jewel in the silver sea is you know that's not an accident um and the idea of like the tides coming in, that's in nineteen, is followed up in twenty by take tying that into love, doing that. So, Angelina, with that in mind, what is he trying to say here about love you, with these metaphors? Do either of you have any thoughts on that?
1: I do have some thoughts and some new thoughts actually. While we were while we were reading this, um. I think, again, we're seeing the tension between the romantic and the pragmatic, right? And then mm-hmm. even the water, the way it's going to shape the shore. And, and, you know, this is that drip, drip, drip of erosion that you shape the shore. But then, you know, th- there's a lot of romance about the sea and England as an island and all that kind of stuff. Um, and in 19, he makes the point that the most... Up and coming important cities are also the ugliest ones in the modern world, and so that that brings that tension up again. So 20 starts then with the the tension between capital R romance and pragmatism because lawyers are not romantic. Hammering out the business end of a marriage agreement is not romantic, right? <laughs> um, and there it is she's she's in the midst of it, and she has this conversation with him, but but. I can't help also thinking that 19 and 20 are connected in another way with that. Helen says, look, all women lose their heads. That's why I kissed Paul. Margaret says, that's crazy. This is entirely different. Right. And then, so then we have a very like chapter 20, very pragmatic. I'm going to hammer out the business end with Mr. Wilcox. Mm -hmm. I mean, like she embarrasses Mr. Wilcox because she's so affront about money issues. Right. And she's, she's very, this is entirely different. And then he kisses her and it's not romantic. And yet she couldn't help thinking this was like Paul. And and I I wasn't sure what to make of that when I first read it. But right now I'm thinking the kiss with Paul, Helen describes as she got caught up in the poetry of the kiss. It wasn't the kiss. It was the poetry of the kiss. And so I can't Mm -hmm. help but wonder if what's happening here is she has this very pragmatic chapter, right? And this this marriage is going to be what it is. And then he kisses her. And it's not romantic. But doggone it if there wasn't poetry in that kiss anyway like maybe a kiss <laughs> the is unexpected just always of it. And the unexpected, maybe a kiss yeah. is just always poetry yes. maybe that's just the nature yeah. of it
2: yeah you know what i thought angelina about that kiss I, I think you're exactly right there's this marriage of the pragmatic and let's call it the romantic and I, <laughs> the conversation between mr wilcox and margaret leading up to the kiss. I thought Mr. Wilcox is the happiest, he's the happiest monkey in the jungle right now. He is so pleased. And I think that he thinks that he has just merged with Margaret's soul. And I think Margaret, who is much more romantic than him, thought, we were just talking business. And I think, I wonder if Mr. Wilcox is like, no, honey, we yeah. were, t- we were okay. in
0: love. I was, because I was actually- That is
1: totally I, legitimate.
0: I was laughing when you said that, that it, doing the business side of a marriage agreement is not romantic. I would, because I was thinking. Well, there's probably some people for whom that yeah. that together okay, is yes. and that, okay. really romantic. So, okay,
1: all right, so then that just brings it up again: the tension between the Wilcoxes and the Schlegels. What is going yep. to feel grand romantic to a Wilcox is not even going yeah. to double in the ocean to the Schlegels. I mean, that's but very can, true.
0: Can I be even? Can I can I narrow that down even further? Like you could say the the Wilcoxes and the Schlegels, but you could also just say like it gets you have to narrow it down to the individual, right? Because even you know.
1: Yes, Margaret versus Helen.
0: Yeah, Margaret versus Ellen, or Mr. Wilcox and Mrs. Wilcox. You know the his late wife, or or Paul and Charles. I mean, like it's it's about the you know the families. Yes, because the families have they, well, they create context. Yes, but they it's the individual as well. Like two individuals sure. are what are, are whose you know how they feel about it is where it gets so complicated. and That tension comes in, and figuring out how to like connect when you feel figuring out how to connect about how you feel about each other when you express it and 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 um live it out in different ways is probably the hardest thing about one of the hardest things about any relationship right mm. cuz like my wife and i express how we feel about each other extremely differently i mean this is where they talk about the love languages stuff but mm. figuring out how to how to express that in ways that are meaningful to the other person not just yourself yeah if
1: your love language is balancing my checkbook ledger you're gonna have to move right, on
0: right. <laughs> but, yeah, right so like i feel i can ex- i express affection one way my w- but i have to find a way to express my affection for my wife in a way that is meaningful to her right i can't just depend on i can't just focus on how i f- express it right yeah and that's where it connect figuring out a to way to make the way we ex- we express our affections towards each other is one of the and connecting those together is the hardest part of any relationship, but mm-hmm. especially a, a romantic relationship, right? Mm-hmm. It's true of friendship, like business relationships. Absolutely, best, yeah. Like mm-hmm. Best friends, pod, podcast hosts. Um, what? Who?
1: <laughs> David's language is food. Unfortunately, Tim and I get none of that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you guys, can I, can I tell a story that is on this point? I, I will not use the names, but um, a couple that, that listens to this program. They got married. Oh gosh. I'm going to say it was 10 years ago. No, it was more than that. So it was 12 years ago. And I asked the husband who was a longtime friend of mine. I said, so, you know, you've been married a few months now, like, you know, how's it going? And he said, he said, it's great. I, you know, it's like, I wish I had not waited so long to get married because he was, you know, I think he was probably in his mid thirties when he got married. And, you know, he just loved his wife and they had a great honeymoon and they were just settling in together and he was so happy. And he said, you won't believe what happened. And I said, what? And he said, I was at work. And while I was at work, I completely forgot that I had forgotten to pay my mortgage two months in a row. <laughs> and so I kind of like flew into this terror and I call home, I call my wife and I say, Honey. I'm so embarrassed. I completely forgot to pay the mortgage two months in a row. And she said, I took care of it. And he said, what? She said, yeah, I took care of it. I knew that you had forgotten. And so I just got out the checkbook and I wrote a check and I took care of it. And, you know, he hangs up the phone and he was just over the moon. And I, and it, it made me laugh. That story remind me of Angelina. Like, if you're signed like the checkbook ledger, this is not the height of love. And I think that he would say the same thing. I think that he would say, you know, like, that's not what he got into the marriage for. That's not why he, you know, married his wife. But because she covered his weakness so adroitly, it was like the height of ecstasy for them. And think, I know there's, a, there's so much, I mean, there's, they've got a. I think they've got a wonderful marriage as far as I can see. Um, I, I, I think that she, like I said, the fact that she recognized, oh, this is just not his strength. Let me just take care of this.
0: Do you think it's oh, possible absolutely. that the merging of souls is more, to borrow Angelina's phrase, the merging of souls is more or is less defined by the heights of romance as you put it tim that or the heights of love or whatever you said than it is by a million little things that that are that that make the connection stronger
2: i can only speak as a sociologist on this matter as a bachelor my answer would be yes that just seems to me like there has to be more. It's again, I'm totally talking from an outsider. It seems like there's gotta be more, but that seems like a a, a pretty okay, important so prerequisite. I, feel like I need
1: to like define a bazillion terms here.
2: Yeah. I mean, we
0: have, you, you have literally two minutes and I'm, Perfectly understand that I was over (laughs) oversimplifying.
1: Well, I don't mean to suggest that Mr. Wilcox doesn't feel he's in love. I think that he does. The point is that his understanding of what that means is so very different from hers. Um, Yeah. And and when I talk about the merging of the souls, obviously, anytime there's going to be like unity in a couple, and that can be very pragmatic. It's going to feel like we're one, right? And and so that's going to happen. But when I talk about like somebody who's again capital R romantic philosophy. They are not talking about, I'm looking for a partner in life. That is not Mm -hmm. the way a romantic looks at it, right? Mm -hmm. So when they're talking about the merging of two souls, it would be like, I'm going to plummet the depths of understanding. I'm going to know you and see you and understand. You're going to know and see me and and that's just not the world that Mr. Wilcox interacts mm. with, right? Like, he, Forrester makes the point several times of, well, I know my worker, and I don't really know anything about him, and that's fine. His business is his business. I know he's my good worker, right? And he's really comfortable with knowing people in that way, where, you know, Helen and Margaret want to sit down Leonard and give him the third degree. Like, we want to know every nook and cranny of your soul. Why were you walking, you know? And he's like, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So so they just so uh what what it means to be in love with someone they view differently, is what you're saying?
1: Yes, that's yes. there's two very different and again, Forrester's holding all these things in tension. Mm. They have a very highly idealized view. That's why Helen feels Margaret has betrayed them. Mm. Knows Margaret doesn't have those kinds of feelings about Mr.
2: Wilcox. I agree. Yeah.
1: But again, Forrester is not – he's not flipping the coin on either one of these, and I'm interested to see what is this mystery he's referring to, this unexpected mystery. Perhaps she will be more deeply in love than she imagined she could be, and perhaps he will also come to a place that he he never thought he could in a relationship either.
0: And thus maybe those lowercase r things will lead to – emerging of souls. I mean, I
1: completely agree that. See, that's what's so interesting. Margaret thinks the kiss came out of nowhere and mm-hmm. wasn't led up to. I completely agree that Mister milcox is like feeling like a fourteen-year-old boy, like yeah, he's yeah, just absolutely yeah. beyond probably thinking
0: about it for four hours. Right? Yes, absolutely. And this is like, oh God, absolutely. I can't take it anymore.
1: I have to kiss this woman, and she's just like, "Where did that come from?" Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have to read me a poem or something you're not doing this right
0: <laughs> yeah we have been doing business we haven't been wandering along through a yeah through a field looking at the flowers and
1: and all of about- those fantastically hilarious anti-romantic elements in that chapter right like they're on the walk in the boardwalk they're they're this newly engaged couple and they're going to be planning their wedding day and she says too loud so when are you going to marry me and then these boys start snickering at them i mean that was just yeah, yeah.
0: fantastic <laughs> yep yep
1: I mean, they're basically saying that 1910 version of get our room, you know, it's fantastic. And he's like, I would beg you to remember there's a lady present.
2: <laughs> I shall call the police if we have further outbursts.
1: <laughs>
0: and you could just see like really what would happen is before the police could get there is Margaret would go over there and hit her with hit them with an umbrella or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> He's, she, she's competent enough to take care of herself, right? Well,
1: yeah, she doesn't want him to walk her home. Again, she misses that that's a romantic gesture on his part, right? Yeah, right. like, I right. walk, I've backpacked in the mountains, whatever, I can walk home.
2: And <laughs> yeah. his, resp- his response is something like, and if I, I have my way, have you, you have never get, shall again.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but, Which for him is this like chivalrous romantic absolutely, gesture. Like, yeah. She's just like, what is wrong with you? I have legs yeah. at work.
0: <laughs> but she also wasn't, she, it also says that she's not like offended by it. Nope. She's not
1: offended by any of the things about him that Helen is. So that's interesting Mm
0: too. Yeah, Helen would be like, you know, how dare you? I'm a, I'm a, what, what, what is it? uh, What is, what are they? They're something, they're trading on something about Margaret, her, uh, I shouldn't have even brought it up. Go ahead, Tim. Say something. (laughs)
2: Hey, Well, I actually do. This is going to segue us away, David. I have an observation that I would love for us to take up in one of the subsequent podcasts on the book.
0: Have Trading you guys a noticed? Trading reputation as an emancipated woman. Ooh, oh, nice, that's David. The yeah, that's the line. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Um,
2: have you guys noticed how, when Forrester has a conversation between two people, how negligent he is in describing the other people that are around that conversation or the setting of that conversation? Meaning, there were a few times during the re- during the chapters that we read where i don't know you know margaret would be talking to uh, someone and a third party would just pop up and say a few words and i was like wait a second we didn't even know that per- i didn't even know that person was in the room
0: have you guys noticed this or is this just me
1: i did not notice that oh gosh maybe i'm I- not a good
2: reader <laughs>
0: Yeah that's obviously the conclusion we're all going to draw right now. Um,
2: <laughs> what did we discover on today's podcast? Well, Angelina's not a good
0: reader.
1: Also she spews nonsense and admits it and loves it. <laughs> and
0: loves it. Well, no, I did notice like I I find some of the the uh, conversations disorienting in how he presents them um mm-hmm. which seems purposeful. I don't think it's an I don't think he's like just a terrible writer of dialogue. Um But Tim, that's going to have to be your final thought because we're running out of time and I'm going to ask Angelina to give a final thought now. And you have 25 seconds, Angelina. No,
1: okay. I can't think of anything else. I'm just enjoying it. I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I'm really enjoying it.
0: Yep, likewise. All right, well, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Uh, Thanks for everyone who's been supporting us through Patreon. If you want to learn more about how you can do that, you can go to patreon.com slash close reads. Thank you for continuing to converse with us over on the Facebook page. I don't think that any of us have any chance or capability of keeping up with all the conversations going on over there. So we'll just continue to participate as we can and for the rest of it be a fly Not on the Not at all,
1: but I, and I, and I know Tim feels the same way because we've we've talked about this. It, it's cool to watch them take over the conversation. Yeah, I, I like, was just going to say. super awesome to see yeah. them and to see friendships developing and people meeting and talking and just like I feel like we just basically present appetizers and then they are off and running with the rest yeah, of that meal, you know. Absolutely. I, say,
0: I don't know that anybody needs to hear from us any more than we are. we already have the floor. So exactly, um, it might be a little bit of overkill. So, <laughs> um, well, yeah, thanks to everyone uh, for the community that you've been creating and that we're uh, just grateful to be a part of. So, uh, I guess that's it um, for. Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at Searcy, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. We'll talk to you next week.